Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. There's a question I've been giving a lot of thought to lately, and it's one that I've never really known how to answer. I'm starting to get a little bit of a better handle on it, but there's still not a clear answer. The question is, of course, if I had to fight one letter of the alphabet, which letter would I want it to be? Like I said, it's a difficult question and one I still don't have a clear answer for. I'm leaning a little bit towards O just because it doesn't have any pointy bits, but like I said, I've still got a lot of thinking to do. What I do know is this. The letter that I would least like to fight is the letter Q. I mean, for one thing, it's basically an O with a knife. So, no thank you. Also, it's not in that many words, so I feel like it'd be pretty well-rested. And if we're talking capital letters, which I assume we are. I mean, I'm not going to fight a lowercase letter. I'm not a monster. But if it's an uppercase cursive Q, could sneak right up on me and I would never recognize it. It's been a long time since I've seen one of those, and I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be able to pick one out out of a lineup. The main reason, though, is that it's the only letter that never travels without a chaperone. So if you bump into him, there's a pretty good chance you're going to be outnumbered because his buddy U's going to be there. But mostly it makes you wonder why none of the other letters trust him to go out by himself. Like, what did this guy do that when he's hanging out in the Scrabble bag with his buddies and is like, eh, I'm going to go get a bite to eat, they're like, uh, 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 you take you with you. You know what happened last time. Now, maybe he's just incompetent, in which case I'm not going to feel good about fighting him. But I'm more worried that it's like a Joe Pesci in Casino type situation. Like, you don't send that guy out by himself because there's a pretty good chance he's just going to go psycho and start like, Trying to stab you to death with his shoe because you mentioned that you like cardamom better than cinnamon. And I know letters don't wear shoes or generally have strong opinions about spices. But this is Q we're talking about. Who the fuck knows? Anyway, my point here is twofold. A. I would not like to fight the letter Q. And two. I have a rich and fulfilling social life. Now, let's talk about a comic book. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Joseph Garvin. Titan Tower is a hype house. Danny Chase is a proper louse. Hub and Corey dive into this social abyss and bring back to us this synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Joseph. New Titans, number 57, August, 1989. A Study in Steel. Written by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. Drotted by George Perez. Inkted by Bob McLeod. Lettered by John Costanza. Colored by Adrienne Roy. And edited by John Peterson and Mike Carlin. New Titan Lineup. Nightwing, Starfire, Troia, Jericho, Raven, and Cyborg. Kind of. 
Previously in the New Titans. An indeterminate amount of comic book time ago, the Titans ran afoul of an amoral ungulate enthusiast who called himself Wildebeest. Wildebeest had a fancy mechanized GNU costume complete with horns and hoof-shaped mittens, was a master of disguise, and seemed like a real asshole. Over the course of several issues, he launched a series of unnecessarily complicated schemes, framing Starfire for murder, infiltrating the tower as an IT support hippie, and dressing up as a chain-smoking obstetrician to steal a magic baby. The Titans managed to thwart all of these schemes, but despite losing each battle, Wildebeest always managed to escape and imply that his defeat was all part of some larger, even more unnecessarily complicated scheme. In more recent Titan news, Donna Troy, FKA Wonder Girl, got a new haircut, a new origin, and started going by the name Troya. Dick Grayson, aka Nightwing, has been a bit out of sorts ever since he found out that his successor as Robin had been murdered. The angst-ridden acrobat started seeing a psychiatrist, began taking his secret identities more seriously, and even attempted to commiserate with his father figure Bruce Wayne, aka Batman, about his grief. Unfortunately, Batman was a real prick about it, and slapped his surrogate son around. Bummer. But not all the news was bad, because precocious late-season cast edition and telekinetic sociopath Danny fucking Chase got kicked off the team for being a dipshit. Hooray! Not only that, but Beast Boy's stepfather Steve Dayton, the sixth richest and therefore sixth most trustworthy man in America, banned his stepson from any Titan activities until Gar could get his shit together. So presumably Beast Boy is off the team forever. Hooray! Also, Jericho has been simultaneously dating at least five different women. Gadzooks! Are Beast Boy and Danny fucking Chase really gone for good? Does his prominence in this recap mean that Wildebeest appears in this issue? And will Joey's busy love life prevent him from picking up any new hobbies? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Probably not, but let's enjoy it while we can. Sort of. And nope, it sure won't. A man in a familiar-looking GNU costume crouches on a rooftop as the sun rises over New York's skyline behind him. He poses dramatically for a few minutes, then looks off into the distance at the Titan's T-shaped skyscraper and leaps away. A few blocks away, in Coriander's penthouse apartment, Dick and Starfire wake up early and begin their day. Dick mentions that he's going to try to talk to Batman again, and Cory wishes him good luck. Then Dick is like, Hey, you know how I've been dressing up as a whole bunch of different guys to go on dates with you lately? Starfire is like, Yes, I have indeed noticed that. Dick is like, Well, it's a new thing I'm doing to protect my secret identity better. Starfire is like, Okay. Meanwhile. A handsome stranger with a blonde perm is jogging through Central Park with an attractive young Asian woman. Wait a minute. That's no stranger. That's Jericho. I just didn't recognize him because he shaved off his signature mutton chops? What the hell, Joey? I hope you had a good reason for doing that. The young woman, who it turns out is named Lissa Eng, is like, Wow, Jojo, I can't believe you cut off your signature mutton chops, but at least it was for a good reason. It was so you could join the chorus line as a dancer in that off-Broadway play we're both in. 
Ah, that explains it. Lissa rambles on charmingly for a bit and flirts with Joey as they jog. Then, a mitten-clad hand reaches down from atop a nearby footbridge and grabs Lissa by the shoulder, jerking her into the air. Oh no! What manner of mittened menace is this? Is Santa Claus finally starting to initiate the sinister Phase 2 of his Naughty List protocols? Does Rom the Space Knight suspect that Lissa Eng is a dire wraith? No and no. It appears that Wildebeest is up to his old tricks again. Dang. I was kind of hoping for a Rom crossover. The horn-having hoodlum hoists Lissa in the air by the scruff of her neck and mean mugs at Joey. Joey activates his creepy lemur eyes and tries to use his mutant powers on Wildebeest to take over his mind, but the mitten-clad menace has special lenses in his costume which prevent Joey's powers from working on him. So instead, Joey uses his mutant powers to hop into Lissa's body and use it to karate the shit out of Wildebeest and get him to break his hold on her. Once Lissa is free, Joey goes back to his own body and renews his attack on his antlered enemy. Unfortunately, he is almost immediately overpowered. Wildebeest beats the shit out of Joey and is about to finish him off, but then, for some reason, instead of killing the defenseless do-gooder, Wildebeest instead roars at the heavens and leaps off into the air. Huh. Maybe he noticed that Joey didn't have his mutton chops anymore and assumed he had the wrong guy. That's probably it. Meanwhile, Dick is on the freeway headed towards stately Wayne Manor to confront Bruce. It's not something he's particularly looking forward to. As he drives, Dick remembers a recent therapy session with his psychiatrist, Dr. Parker. Dick had talked about how despite the occasional tension in their relationship, he'd always looked up to Batman, which was why seeing him be such an asshole about Jason Todd dying was really hard for Dick and brought up a bunch of his old anxieties and insecurities. He told Dr. Parker that Starfire had sensed that something was off and thought maybe he was still pissed about her getting space married because that was something he periodically got pissed off about. But he had assured her that he was finally over that forever for at least a month. He asked Dr. Parker whether he should confront Batman, and Dr. Parker was like, Do you think you should confront Batman? Dick was like, No. Yes? Damn it, is this one of those trick questions psychiatrists are always asking? Like, what's Batman's secret identity? And why are you hitting yourself? And how dare you try to escape from my elaborate death trap? Dr. Parker was like, I keep forgetting how many psychiatrists in Gotham are actually supervillains. Anyway, Dick decided he did need to confront Batman. He stops reminiscing about his therapy session as he pulls into Bruce Wayne's driveway. He stands nervously in the doorway and tries to summon the courage to go inside. Back at the Titan Tower, Raven is sitting in her room meditating, when her Raven senses start tingling and telling her that something is up with Cyborg. She teleports over to Victor's apartment and finds that somebody has wrecked the place and that Vic is nowhere to be found. Suddenly, Wildebeest appears out of nowhere. He beats the crap out of Raven, then pauses just like he did once he beat up Joey. Again, Wildebeest yells at the sky and then leaps away, leaving a battered and confused Raven to wonder, What happened? Across town, Starfire is starring in a music video opposite a very expressive rock singer named Sty. The lyrics to the song Sty is lip-syncing are 
Well, they're really something. The shoot wraps up for the day, and the director is pretty stoked about how it went, and is extra stoked that he could save a few bucks by having Starfire fly around and shoot some magic space fire instead of having to hire a special effects guy. Donna stops by the set for a visit. I guess she works as a photographer for the studio that's making the video. Starfire is about to go out to lunch with a new PA named Jazz. The spicy space princess slash supermodel invites Donna to join them, and they're about to take off, when Wildeby shows up and attacks them. This fight lasts a little longer than the previous two because A, Wildebeest is fighting two titans instead of one, and two, I guess since Donna got her origin retconned, she is now stronger and has a magic force field. Neat. Donna uses her new force field to protect the civilians as Coriander shoots a huge magic space fire punch at her ungulate assailant. There is a giant explosion, and when the dust clears, Wildebeest is gone. Later that night, the gang gathers back at the Titan Tower and compares notes. Starfire's upset because nobody's been able to get in touch with Dick. Raven's upset because Cyborg is missing, and for some reason her magical nonsense powers didn't sense any danger before Wildebeest attacked her. And Joey is upset because he misses his mutton chops. I mean, he doesn't say anything about it, but I can tell. What a trooper. Donna is wondering aloud how their GNU-themed antagonist knows so much about the Titans and their respective schedules, when suddenly, Wildebeest Kool-Aid mans his way through the wall of the conference room and attacks the startled superheroes. Despite their numerical superiority, the Titans are struggling to hold their own. The captions which display Wildebeest's analysis of the fight shows that he's incredibly familiar with his opponents and their tactics and is able to anticipate nearly all of their moves. After trouncing Jericho yet again, Wildebeest leaps to the control panel for the Titan's defense system and activates a sonic boom that knocks Starfire and Troya on their asses. Then, following the pattern he's lately established, the horn-headed home intruder busts out through a window and leaps away into the night. Or at least he starts to. But, while he is mid-leap, the gang's antelope-adjacent adversary is intercepted and cocooned by Raven's bird-shaped soul-tummy avatar. Hooray! The avian-themed Azerathian enchantress is like, I think I finally get what's going on here. Just let me use my nonsense feelings magic to chill you out, and... There! Raven's soul-tummy cocoon spits out an unconscious wildebeest. With great trepidation, the rest of the gang approaches the KO'd Crumbum who had caused such chaos. Donna does her best impression of Fred from Scooby-Doo. She yoinks off the villain's mask and is like, Now let's see who you really are. But when their assailant's identity is revealed, the gang is shocked. Because it turns out, their nemesis is no mere old man McGinty who wanted to close down the amusement park so he could keep the hidden treasure for himself. It's... Cyborg. Rut-row! To be continued. And joining me once again through the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hello. It is going just fine. How are you? I'm doing okay for the most part. Just got back from being on the coast for a month and... 
it's taken some adjusting. Mm, big city life. Indeed. I mean, the thing that's taken the most immediate adjusting is that we cleaned out the fridge pretty good before we left. Mm. And so when we got back, I was like, oh, that's right. We don't have anything. So this morning I made myself a cup of coffee and I had to use instant coffee, which we had from like a recipe that I made a while ago. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have any dairy, so I had to put some ice cream in it. Oh, no. And uh, it was okay. I always get the proportions wrong with instant coffee, so I end up getting more caffeine than I realize I'm getting. Uh huh. And then the ice cream made an interesting addition to that. I know, like, if it was with espresso and gelato, it'd be like an affogato, something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's a shittier, more American version of that. So I'm calling it a. Ah, for Christ's sake. Ah, da-ding. That's a Moiser rim shot mix, right? Da-ding. Well, we're, we're out of our normal rim shots, so I had okay. to use instant rim shots. That's why the noise is a little off. Yeah, da-ding. Well, I'm glad that you were able to uh, get some ice cream with your coffee. That sounds nice. Yeah, that's the important thing. Hmm. So, you want to talk about a comic book? Yeah, why not? Corey, what did you think of this comic book? You know, I don't know where things are going or what's happening, but I'm along for the ride and it was fun. Yeah, I feel the same. It was a very straightforward comic book for the most part, which I'm not used to from this title. It seems like it is kicking off a larger arc and I have described my reaction to the last few first issues and arcs in this title as being guardedly optimistic. And I, I can't. I need to be more guarded than that because they've let me down almost invariably. That being said, this seems like it's going someplace cool. I'm curious if they're going to mess it up. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting twist. I don't know where it is going. I was genuinely surprised to see Cyborg be under the Wildebeest mask and not surprised in a way that felt like cheating. You know, like this came out of nowhere and it wasn't set up. It was like, oh, you have a plan and I'm curious as to see what it is. Now, at what point that plan goes off the rails, we'll see. But so far, so good. Yeah, I had a similar take on it, too. I think my notes at the, my last note said I did not see that coming. Well, like I said, you get a fairly straight ahead story in this. You have Dick getting therapy is the B plot, which is nice. And he's on his way to go confront Bruce about the fact that Bruce is losing his shit and being a total dick. <laughs> and then you get the A plot, which is all of the Titans are being attacked by Wildebeest and Wildebeest is acting really weird. And then you get the big surprise, which is, of course, Jericho has shaved off his mutton chops so that he could be in an off-Broadway production of A Chorus Line. Yeah, they, I didn't realize they had such a strict no mutton chops policy <laughs> on a chorus line, but I learn something new every time I read one of these. I think technically he's in a chorus line, not the play a chorus line, but oh, I was a little bit confused about that point myself. That's a little disappointing. <laughs> it kind of is. I thought that he looked a lot like a blonde version of if, if Brian May, like a young Brian May guitar mm. player for Queen, dressed up for a run fair. I can totally see that. I am having a lot of difficulty adjusting to how 
weird he looks without his mutton chops. Also a little bit like a, I don't know, a very surprised muscular Robert Plant. He does look like a surprised Robert Plant. He looks like a Robert Plant that's surprised as I am every time I remember that Led Zeppelin did that one reggae-sounding song, Dire Maker. Uh-huh. Although we learn from one of his paramours, the fabulous Lissa Ang, that uh, he is not in his final stage of evolution because he intends to grow his hair much longer, and it's going to look really good then. <laughs> I loved this character and the exchange that they had. She was great. I loved her, too. She is a wonderful addition to the book. I hope that she sticks around. I feel angry on her behalf that Jericho is such a Lothario and that she is just one of his many conquests at this point because she is a goddamn delight and I want to see more of her. Mm -hmm. Same. But uh, it's, it's good to know he's going to look really, really good <laughs> soon. I mean, he already looks really good now in his turquoise headband and his jazz dance t-shirt. His t-shirt is, I guess we should wait till sartorially speaking, but I have never seen a stress-activated letter-disappearing jazz dance tank top. We will absolutely have to discuss that later. But I did enjoy Jericho's appearance in this book, largely due to uh, Lissa Ang, although... So bummed to see those mutton chops go. I guess the other big development we have in this issue is we learn that Starfire is taking part in an awesome music video. <laughs> Man, Sty, whatever your name is, you are giving the Badger a run for his money. <laughs> Wait, the Badger? Uh, sorry, what was the, the Badger's band? Uh... No, 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 no. You're thinking of the ferret, Corey. The oh, Badger sorry, is sorry, a different Badger. guy. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Badger. I get him and the ferret mixed up, which is just not fair to either in different I ways. I can't imagine how you could possibly confuse them. No, it's weird. It is weird. Yeah. Wow. Sty's band is pretty awesome. You know what? Let's take a look at that song. <laughs> Feel it. Feel it hard. What do you think the song is called, judging from the lyrics? Because I have a definite take on this. Um, this love grown gray and ashen? Has ah, a little too flowery. I'm almost certain the song is called Touch It Hard. <laughs> the greatest lyric in the song. Yeah, that, touch, that touches out. That checks out. Touch it, touch it hard. <laughs> oh, it's so dumb. It is real. The thing is, Corey, all lyrics are dumb. If you take them out of context, with the exception of rap lyrics, honestly, because they are meant to be taken on their own to a greater extent, almost all popular music lyrics are really, really dumb. Yeah, I guess I just don't have the context for what is the difference between feeling it hard and feeling it light <laughs> in the night, like a thought growing short. What? Is it a song about impotence? Oh, maybe. Feel it, feel it hard. Well, I don't think you'd be feeling it hard if it was about impotence. Well, no, now I'm feeling it light, like a thought, in the night, growing short. <laughs> okay, well, maybe. Wait, touch it, touch it hard. Through the rite of passion. Well, well, and that's when it is, touch it hard, and then, oh, touch it light. Oh, not excite. 
we deceive not excite so he's uh he's faking it which is very difficult to do it's difficult to fake an erection yeah yeah that's true (laughs) oh my gosh and then they do a weird like 69 nose boop as they say so we leave this love grown gray and ashen like they're upside down and just rubbing their noses together I think they're supposed to kiss at the end when there's that like starburst effect after the nose boop. Okay, so they're like doing like a upside downy type Spider-Man kiss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I thought that was just all about the nose boop, and it seemed like a weird move. Oh, it's a weird move. Do you think that is a is that a, a Wolfman cameo as the director? Maybe I tend to read too much into that, I think. I think every bearded guy who shows up in this comic is like, oh, is that Wolfman? It may or may not be. All we know about the director is that he's cheap. Yeah, he is cheap. We also have like a bunch of other characters show up around the music video production. We have the production assistant Jazz, which is a cool name. And it made me wonder at first, like, oh, is Jericho wearing her T-shirt? I wonder if they're dating as well. But I don't think she is. And I also am disappointed. It doesn't look like from what I've looked up, we see anything more from Jazz or Sty. And that's a disappointment. That is that is a disappointment. You know, I just I realized that we're casting aspersions on the director, uh, Joe, for being cheap. But I I did just notice he's got one of those Panavision cameras on the little dolly. And I, I remember reading somewhere that when those came out, they were really expensive. Oh, well, maybe that's what he did with the money that he saved by bumping up the production shoot to the afternoon, because he saved $2,000 doing that. Yeah, in 80s money, that was like, what? Seven million? Thousand? Million. Yeah, 7,000 million. Okay. And for more financial advice, check (laughs) out our other show. Oh, sure. What's our other show called again, Corey? I forget. Uh, If it don't make dollars, it don't make sense. Yep, that's what it's called. You just had that locked and loaded? Uh, it is a uh, uh, Black Rock lyric. Clever. Hmm. In addition to Corey shooting her music video, we also have Donna Troy show up on the set of the music video because she is the still photographer part of the production studio that's making the music video or something. Yeah. And she, along with Corey, seems to be doing a very bad job of protecting her secret identity. I think in this we are supposed to get that I guess Starfire doesn't have a secret identity after all. Because the first way that the director gets called cheap, besides moving up the production time, is that he is saving money by using Starfire for special effects as well as modeling. So I guess she doesn't have a secret identity, which is kind of too bad. I liked the idea of her just putting on sunglasses and that being her secret identity. Yeah, it also explains. And gosh, did we figure out this on a previous episode and I just forgot? I recall we were trying to guess at why Dick was being such a weirdo with the disguises. Uh, I think we kind of arrived at this, but it kind of explains it. It kind of doesn't explain it. like. To me, it makes sense psychologically, but not logically. It makes sense that in reaction to Jason Todd's murder, he would want to go out of his way to protect the people around him. And so really double up on the secret identity. But it doesn't make sense in terms of, I don't know what 
the bonus would be to dressing up like nine different people and dating Starfire as opposed to just dressing up as one different person and dating Starfire. Well, you got to throw the, the paparazzi off, man. It's the okay. first rule of show business. You got to be nine guys. Yeah, that's the first rule of show biz. ABNG, always be nine guys. It also seems like the fact that he is taking extra lengths to have more of a secret identity means that Donna has decided it's fine if she drops her secret identity, which she had never been that invested in, it seemed like before. But in this, she is just flat out making no excuses about using superpowers in front of a whole lot of different civilians. Yeah, I had the same thought bubble when I was reading that sequence of events, which was... Do all these people just know that because Donna and Starfire hang out, they're actually their superhero identities? And it's just the people in this video shoot? Or how's that work? I think maybe everybody just knows, or they just don't give a shit anymore. Donna has always been pretty haphazard about protecting her secret identity. I mean, she doesn't wear a mask and she's at least a little bit famous in her civilian identity, having an entertainment adjacent profession as a fashion photographer. So it seems like people probably would have been able to put two and two together, especially as so many of the photos that she takes are of Starfire. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't change her earrings. But what she does change is her entire power set. And this is really the first inkling of that that we have gotten. We got a whole like five issue arc rebooting her origin, talking about the ways that she's changed. And in none of that did they mention the fact that she now has force fields and is way stronger and has a whole bunch of other stuff. And that information is just kind of plopped on us here in a way that really honestly reminded me of a Bob Haney comic. She's like, I keep forgetting that I ha now have additional powers that I can use and can make force fields and all this other shit. Yeah, I know. It's, it does have that Haney feel of like, ooh, and then this would be cool. <laughs> yep. Like, I'll just write it in. I was reading some old non-Teen Titan Bob Haney comics, and he does have a real tendency to introduce characters by having a character react to them and saying, oh, you're back. I knew we hadn't seen the last of you. And just implying that they had been introduced previously, but it's their first appearance. And that is kind of how Donna's powers are introduced here, which was kind of weird. Agreed. What did you think of Dick's therapy session? Well, I, I got to tell you, and, and this will come up in clothing, but uh, Dr. Parker has quite the getup. I like the uh, purple look. Mm -hmm. In terms of the therapy, I like that uh, she was uh, drawing out of him stuff and, you know, not making statements and whatnot, doing her job okay. Yeah, and I'm glad that Dick is getting some therapy. It certainly seems like he needs it. I think pretty much everyone in a superhero comic book would benefit greatly from getting some therapy, but especially with the shit that he's been through recently. He also is doing kind of a half ass nominal job of trying to protect secret identities in this context but like she knows that he's dick and he's talking about batman and what his relationship is to batman but he won't tell her what other people's names are seems like if she wanted to it would be really easy for her to figure that out and it's odd that he isn't just coming clean with her as a therapist yeah i mean it seems like she knows he's he's nightwing right because she references his his secret mm-hmm 
but you're saying the rest of the the titans well as we were just discussing i think at this point dick might be the only titan with a secret identity i was actually talking about batman i think i just pluralized secret identities because that's what the psychiatrist says when she says I understand that because other people are involved, you can't break confidence and give me their names. Just as you understand, I won't betray confidence and reveal your secret. But despite all this, you still aren't talking to me, at least not honestly. I like that she's calling him out there. It does seem like I understand he's like, oh, I can't reveal that Batman's secret identity is Bruce Wayne. But I am Dick Grayson who was the ward of Bruce Wayne. And here is what my relationship with Batman was. It seems like he's all but saying that to her. So I don't know why he is bother holding back that tiny bit of information. I guess technically he's not betraying confidence, but it kind of seems like he is. Although he could just kind of respect the patient doctor confidentiality. I don't know. It just seems weird. It does seem a little bit weird, but also it seems in keeping with his character. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. He's a cagey guy, you know, he's freaked out. He is indeed. I keep looking at you mentioned Dr. Parker's outfit before, and I also like it a lot. I kept trying to figure out how Wildebeest could be hiding under there because it really seems like probably she's Wildebeest because he's like everybody else. You just wait till wait till she brings out that cigarette then you know okay smoking where you're not supposed to smoke yep that is traditionally one of his tells master of disguise wildebeest yep i i guess we don't know if she works for star labs that would definitely seal the deal do you think star labs is behind turning vic into wildebeest or is that just wildebeest impersonating a different person at star labs how high up does this thing go Ah, geez. Well, first, I would not put it past them. But secondly, no, I think this is this is just got Wildebeest written all over it. Hmm. Okay. He really loves fucking with the Titans. That's true. But they did just make such a big deal out of Vic having a somewhat antagonistic but dependent relationship on Star Labs and establishing that Star Labs is untrustworthy. So I don't know. Oh, geez. You think it's pipe scientist? Oh, the guy from last issue who hit his boss over the head with a science pipe? It could be. Maybe he's Wildebeest. Wildebeest didn't brain anybody with a science pipe. Oh, but that's not OG Wildebeest. That's Cyborg Wildebeest. Mm -hmm. Very confusing. Yes. Wasn't the show... (laughs) Didn't we have a charter to wring sense out of this stuff? Uh, that was at one point part of our mission statement. I think we abandoned that a long time ago, Corey. Oh, okay, okay. That's good. At least I did. Oh, yeah. Just let it wash over you, man. I did like the title of this issue, A Study in Steel. First of all, sounds pretty fucking badass. Mm-hmm. Second of all, kind of gives a nod to both the fact that this is going to involve Cyborg in some way, but also having it be like a mystery. A Study in Scarlet was the name of the first Sherlock Holmes mystery, and so you get that connection there, and there is more of a whodunit to this story than it seems like on the surface of it when you get to the end. I thought that was actually pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, great point. 
And uh, the graphic treatment of the, the title is really pretty nice also. Steel is written in a very shiny, metallic-looking font. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I dug that as well. One thing that I didn't dig so much, we talked about how fun Lissa Ang is, and we talked about Joey shaving off his mutton chops. What we didn't talk about was how disturbing I found it when she describes what it feels like when Joey is taking over her body. She very much alludes to the fact that the sensation is akin to sex in some way. Like there is the obvious analogy of he is inside of her. But the way that she describes it is, wow. You don't know what it feels like when you're inside me like that. It's almost better than... And then he cuts her off and tells her to go run for safety. It's kind of funny in a jokey kind of way. But if you take it at face value that there is a sexual analogy or that you're acknowledging the sexual analogy to his powers, it is way more disturbing that he generally uses them in an almost completely non-consensual way. Yeah, I read that as like a jokey acknowledgement of just, yeah, that it sounds creepy. But I feel like if you make that acknowledgement, even in a jokey way, you are opening the door to that analogy in a way that is pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. Again, I feel like that's one of the things in, in these these comics as we've read them, you know, and they've spanned the, the 70s to the 80s, you know, when everybody was awful. Mm. But that sort of acknowledgement and humor wasn't as immediately uncomfortable to the audience consuming it at the, yeah. at the time. I, I, I don't know, but it seems like, you know what I mean? Like there was a lot of humor that like, if you go back and listen to, to Eddie Murphy comedian or something, you know, that you laughed at when you were a kid and now you're just like, Oh no. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you're right, but it is something that definitely hasn't aged well. And the sensibility around that joke, I think has changed a lot. The context that it maybe would work in is that it is Lissa using the opportunity to be flirtatious with Joey. And I think there is that aspect to it. But once you acknowledge that this is an experience that is pleasurably gratifying in a way, it really does up the ante of the sense of violation of his powers, I think. Yeah, no, I mean, he's got inherently the creepiest power. Oh, absolutely. But uh, I... I wish the creepiness of it was either acknowledged or not underlined in this way, you know? At least not in a dismissive, kind of jokey way. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I get that. What I did like is that she gave him the nickname Jojo, and that's now how I'm writing his name in all my notes. Yeah, Jojo, and I mean, he also is uh, a dancer, so he is Jojo Dancer. <laughs> now I want to see him be played by Richard Pryor. <laughs> Speaking of, of Joey's power being creepy, animals know. If you look carefully at, uh, at page four, a panel in the middle of the page on the left, see the guy walking the dog when Joey's running by? Oh, yeah. Animals know. And on the page before, you see the squirrel reacting to him, too, kind of looking at him sideways. I honestly thought that was mostly due to his outfit, but you're right. It could just be them uh, picking up on uh, his inherently creepy powers there. Could be. The dog, for sure, because dogs are, I feel like, in tune with how people are. Squirrel. Mm. <laughs> Just might be an asshole. Tough but fair. I told you about the time a chipmunk jumped on my head, right? Oh, yeah. That was so scary. 
it's having an animal jump on your head is is really scary. Fact. Fact. <laughs> it's only happened to me once, but I, that was enough, man. What animal jumped on your head? A rooster. Oh. I mean, a goose tried, right, when it was teaming up with a peacock? Now the goose bit me in the nose through a fence. That's kind of jumping on your face with its mouth. Eh. There's something about having something on the top of your head. Yeah. Pecking, pecking at you. It's horrifying. Was it Rocky the rooster? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Man, that rooster was an asshole. Yeah, no, he's a piece of work. Mm. Well, he's dead now. Yep. <laughs> well, you want to move into the minutiae? Yeah, why don't we do that? <laughs> okay. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Cory, what category do you feel like starting us off with? Why don't we talk about some artwork? Okay. Cory, what was your favorite panel in this comic? Well, I am a sucker for a nice sunset or sunrise, and the opening page with the wildebeest in silhouette perched on a perch with the uh, sunrise in the background is really beautifully rendered. It really is. I think that is my favorite panel in the book. Throughout, the art is really, really gorgeous. It is George Perez. He is being inked once again by Bob McLeod, and they work really well together, and also Perez is just a phenomenal artist. so. That's nice, but I think really that one panel stood out to me. The sunset or sunrise in the background, just really beautiful deep blue color palette to it, and then the silhouette of Wildebeest. It reminds me of a Maxfield Parish painting, and I fucking love it. Yep. It uh, made me give Wildebeest the nickname Old Mitten Fists. Mmm. That's a good nickname for him anyway. His mitten fist makes several appearances in this book, and it is always a cause for delight. It's the most menacing mitten I've ever seen. Well, that's because you've never run afoul of Rom the Space Knight. I always thought of him as a reasonable character. Well, that's because you're not a dire wraith. Oh, okay. Yeah, his nullifier is terrifying. Mm-hmm. Especially because, like, the dire race look human. So, like, from your perspective, he's just a space robot with mittens showing up with big glowing eyes and evaporating people you've known your whole life, Corey. You didn't know they were dire wraiths. Oh, if you put it like that, I guess Rom's mittens are creepy, too. Yeah, but wildebeests are worse. You're right. Oh, oh yeah. Let's see. Other panels on page 12, the explosion scene in Cyborg's apartment where. Raven is knocked head over heels by this explosion. It mm-hmm. looks really bad and really serious, but the way it's drawn is very dynamic and cool. I like that panel a lot also. I like the flashback scene on page nine of Batman and Robin swinging through the city. It is stylized in a way that makes it look old timey in a way that the rest of the comic book doesn't. It's still very much George Perez's current art style, but the backgrounds are simplified and it has a nostalgic look to it. And I think that's the feel it's trying to evoke throughout that sequence, too. It's a little bit confusing as a reader to tell which parts are flashbacks and which parts are the now, because the whole therapy session is a flashback that he's remembering as he's driving to Bruce's house. But there's a subtle touch where all of the flashback panels, the corners are rounded slightly. And 
you end up just kind of picking up on that intuitively before you even notice it. And I always appreciate when that's done and done in a consistent way. Mm -hmm. Those decisions would be with Perez, right? As the the guy doing the pencils and the layouts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is so much of that throughout his work, just that amazing attention to, to detail, all those little touches that sometimes you don't even notice it until you go back and read it a second or third time. Right. Yeah. I didn't pick up on the fact that that was what he was doing with it consciously, but it did help me differentiate which things were flashbacks and which things weren't because you just pick up on it subconsciously. And uh, it's very clever. It's something that he's very aware of. Uh, In addition to being a great artist in terms of the detail that he puts into things, really well-practiced storyteller who pays that kind of attention to his craft as well. Mm -hmm. Any other panels? Just one last one of note on page 18, and it's the uh, one where um, Wildebeest and Starfire blow up, and then Donna is inset in it, yelling, Corey. Mm-hmm. It just has that really, that very classic, like, what's it called when there's like the uh, the little dots that show up in the image for oh. like, for a shot? You know what I mean? That You described it before, I forget the term I for do, I, I don't remember. It's part of the four-color printing process, uh-huh. where you, you get the... Uh, God, there's a name for what the dots are, too, and I can't remember it. Yeah, I remember you you saying it before, but it's kind of got that with a shadow of as she's shielding her eyes. And uh, I don't know, it just it just has this like, oh, man, I'm reading a a cool comic book. Like, yeah, no, I know what you mean. It looks like something that like you would see as a refrigerator magnet with some kind of slogan on it. Like at a, a fancy bookstore or something. Totally. Or, yeah, the, the kind of thing that Roy Lichtenstein would totally rip off. Uh-huh. Uh huh. They're called Ben Day dots in honor of Benjamin Day, the 19th century illustrator who invented that printing process. Ah. Corey, let's take this party to the Bozone. Kind of a difficult category this week. But in this issue, what instances of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, did you want to talk about? Yeah, this was a tough one. I couldn't find actually any really overt insults. So I went with a, it wasn't even an insult. It was Coriander being concerned for Dick on page 20 by saying, Dick doesn't have any powers. There's no way he could have fought him off. (laughs) Yeah, I noted that as well. I considered going with that. I ended up finding something insult adjacent that I think the cameraman yells during the fight with Wildebeest and Wonder Girl and Starfire. He yells, blast that bum. I was like, okay, that's an insult. But uh, in general, there weren't any really direct digs other than that that anyone was making. Wildebeest was a mind-controlled cyborg, so he wasn't doing any of his usual insulting banter. He would just show up, attack wordlessly, and then bellow at the heavens and leap off. And nobody was really insulting him either. So yeah, kind of a weird category. I I don't think this has come up before where I had this much difficulty finding an insult, let alone the best one. But there you go. Well, kudos to you for finding the one in this issue. (laughs) I I literally read it four times looking for one. and I somehow missed it. What I had a slightly easier time finding was some band names. So... Let's have ourselves a Battle of the Bands! 
names. What band names were you able to find in the text of this issue? I only had a couple, but I think they're pretty good ones. All right. I found three contenders. I don't know that they're that good. The first one is called The Suddenness of Thought. Mm. And I don't know. They're probably kind of complicated music. King Crimson kind of. I can see that. I can see them also just being kind of like a pseudo deep 80s band, you know? Yeah. A lot of synthesizer type mm-hmm. sounds. And- just thinks they're real smart. But all their choruses have like O's and O's in them. Oh, totally. A lot of rhyming baby with baby. But uh, then <laughs> they'll be, you know, quoting fucking Proust in their liner notes. That kind of shit. Ugh, I don't like this band. Well, one of the ones that I had was the Phosphorescent Novas. Ooh, I think that just sounds cool. Like that also sounds pretentious to me, but badass and pretentious, which I'm a fan of as a combination. Sure. What kind of music do you think they uh, play? Hmm. Gosh, some kind of glam, but like more like hard edge glam. Hard edged glam. Like if you had uh, Dave Mustaine play guitar for T-Rex. Yes. What would happen? Wow. <laughs> That's a terrible idea. Though. No, too bad. It's, it's what they are. I had just meant something like the New York Dolls, but I like this much better. Dave Mustaine playing guitar for T-Rex. That is what the phosphorescent Novas are. What a waste of a time machine. (laughs) Sorry. You don't want to hear that? I just can't think it would work. One way to find out. And that's get our hands on that time machine. When we're done kidnapping Dave Mustaine and Mark Bolin, we'll see if they want to help us kill Hitler. What other band names did you have? Let's see. I had uh, Jericho is a Mutant. Jericho is a Mutant. Okay. I can see that more as a song title than a band name. Kind of like Sheena is a Punk Rocker. I think they just think it's funny. Okay. They probably, I think, are really heavily influenced by Yola Tango. Okay. Their music's probably good. Yeah. Weird name, though. It, it is a weird name that you decided to give them. Hey, it's just it's one that popped out, you know? <laughs> Fair enough. The other one that I had was Rites of Passion, which is a quote from the song, which I gotta believe is called Touch It Hard, which is probably about impotence. <laughs> I think Rites of Passion plays Celtic music. Okay. But like, horny Celtic music. Well... I know, I say that like there's another kind. (laughs) What other one did you have? Oh yeah, my last one is, uh, these guys are kind of a bummer. Love Grown Gray. Love Grown Gray. Grown like G-R-O-W-N, not the sound. Are they just uh, old hippies? Is this like Touch of Gray (laughs) era Grateful Dead? No, no, no. no, no, It sounds like they are. (laughs) No, I was thinking of it more as... You know, slow, heavy, kind of distorted music, but uh, in general, sad. Okay, like a downer sludge core? Yeah. I just added the word core at the end to make it sound more like a genre. Uh, I don't know if that's a thing. Downer sludge core. Okay. It's like you had a bad breakup, so Mm -hmm. you put on your love grown gray. 
drink your absinthe. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Smoke your clove cigarettes. Uh-huh. Fair enough. So of our options, what do you think is the best band name? Run through yours real, real quick again. I had the Phosphorescent Novas and Rites of Passion. And yours were the Suddenness of Thought, Jericho is a Mutant, and Love Grown Gray, right? Oh, man. I, I can't get me enough of that horny Celtic music. I'm going with Rites of Passion. Okay, uh, horny Celtic music it is. Rites of Passion. <laughs> Sounds good. And horny. Man, Stein needs to listen to those guys. I know. Help, help him out, maybe. Uh-huh. Corey, every issue of a Titans comic book has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and also a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans, until Danny fucking Chase showed up. In this issue, who did you have as your Aqualad, and who did you have as your Beast Boy? For my Aqualad, I think I'm going to go with Raven for making the, I guess, not surprisingly intuitive leap to figure out that Wildebeest was actually Cyborg. Hmm. Because how the heck did she do that? I guess using her powers, but man, what a stretch. It's either a stretch that she was able to use her powers to do that, or that she wasn't able to use her powers to do that sooner. You know, it feels like they kind of should have gone one way or the other with that. Like, she's attacked by a guy who she knows super, super well and doesn't pick up on the fact that that's who she is, is more surprising to me that then she eventually does pick up on who he is. Yeah, 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 but Hub, the Wildebeest is a master of disguise. The Titans are bad at disguise, so... Okay, okay. Are the Titans bad at disguise? I give you Exhibit A, Joe Walsh, a.k.a. Dick Grayson. Exhibit B, Arnie, the nebbishy dude, a.k.a. Dick Grayson. Okay, Dick was my runner-up, but, <laughs> but not for the disguises, just because he did a good job going to therapy and confronting um, Batman, which I don't think I would do. No, I probably wouldn't be able to either, especially if he was my dad. I gave my nod to Dick Grayson for those very reasons. I just had a Dick for getting help which yep. can be hard to do, especially if somebody is used to being a somewhat independent person and thinks of themselves as being stoic and resilient. The fact that he sought out and then took the advice of a counselor, really, really impressive. And the fact that he is going to, in fact, do the difficult thing of confronting Batman. Good job, buddy. Mm -hmm. Conversely, for my Beast Boy... I don't feel good about it, but I, I went with Cyborg. He did attack the other Titans. As my backup, I had Raven. She did eventually save the day, but there was also that confusion about why she wasn't able to pick up on things earlier. I guess you raised the good point that Wildebeest is a master of disguise. On par with, I gotta say, probably Dana Carvey. Um, <laughs> so good for him. And uh, like psychological disguise. Oh, what kind of psychological disguise is he donning? Uh, just uh, like cloaking Cyborg's identity from, from Raven. Oh, right, right, right. Not Dana Carvey. <laughs> well, I don't know, man. When he was dressed as that turtle guy, really made you think. Or church lady. Yes, or the church lady. <laughs> I think those are very psychological disguises. 
<laughs> I had I had a similar lineup for my Beast Boy, and uh, yeah, I didn't feel great about it either. But Cyborg, I guess, for attacking all of his buddies and also just ruining that very expensive video set. Mm. Um, that said, I think he's got to share a little bit of the blame with Starfire <laughs> in that one for <laughs> blowing the whole place up. Yeah, uh, she was holding back when she did that too. Just imagine the kind of music video set she could have destroyed if she was really cutting loose. Like, probably the whole set for Total Eclipse of the Heart. That haunted, sexy boarding school would have been toast! Alright, it can't be delayed any further, Corey. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue do you want to talk about, and why are they Lissa Eng's outfit? And Joey. Joey and Lissa together. They are a power couple. Man, oh man, oh man. Disappearing tank top letters. That's the hyper color. It's the style of the times. Yeah, you get sweaty. Jazz dance. Whoop, <laughs> just disappears. Uh, Corey, jazz dance will never disappear. <laughs> it's, it's weird. Yeah, you'd think it would go the other way, right? When you get nervous or excited, the letters would get. Get brighter. Yeah. Boy, yeah, just having the tank top that says jazz dance with music notes on it. Wow. And yeah, pair that up with some short shorts and some uh, some sneakers and a nice teal headband over your mullet that no longer has mutton chops on it. And those wristbands, they match the short shorts, the shoes, the wristbands, the headband and the jazz dance lettering are all the same shade of teal. Oh, he, he definitely bought that outfit at the same time, probably as part of a set. Yeah, it, it is very nice. And then you have Lissa's outfit, which, wow. I mean, also very matchy. She has a thicker headband, looks almost like uh, when you cut off a T-shirt sleeve and make that into a headband. But she's wearing that with a ponytail and a blue and white striped half shirt. It's like a Russian sailor shirt almost, but then just like cut off like four inches above the navel. And she's wearing that shirt under, I don't know, some like bikini overalls. I don't know what you call those. Yeah, it's like a Jane Fonda workout unitard that just has straps above the hips. Yeah, or like a a doublet, a wrestling doublet. Is that what you call that? I thought a doublet was like the kind of thing Jericho would wear to Ren Fair. I thought, well, I just... You, are, are you extrapolating from the word singlet? Yes, I am. Okay. I think a doublet is a different thing. I might be totally wrong. But uh, yeah, it's it's like a Zardoz thing or Vampirella, but mixed with like, I don't know, lingerie overalls. It's a weird look. It is a weird look. It looks very hard to run in. I would imagine so. She also has some very nice puffy leg warmers that she is wearing with this outfit. It is a very complete look and a completely enchanting look, if a baffling one. And it is definitely not a doublet, which I just looked up on my phone. That's like what the conquistador puffy sleeve thing is. Yeah, that's like what Jericho usually wears. Yeah, my bad. A bilet? What? Bilet? Duolet? What do you call the wrestling thing that's got two straps instead of one? I think it's still a singlet. 
Like, because it's a, a one piece. It's not the strap. It's just the whole garment. That's one thing. I got it. Yeah. I, I don't know if there's a separate name for the Tarzan slash Andre the Giant type one. Yeah, I've been thinking about this wrong my whole life. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Jeez. And now you got to finish a podcast with a blown mind. Oh, uh, good luck. Okay, well, what's a jerkin? That's like a tunic, right? I don't or know. Is it, or is it pants? They're usually made out of leather. I remember that from reading Dragonlance. I think you would wear a doublet at the same time as a jerkin. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know, man. Well, guess we have to go to Renfair. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I bet there's some kind of a jerkin bumper sticker that could be worked out, too. <laughs> yeah. If you see this van a jerkin. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I can't think of anything that rhymes with it other than gherkin. And I don't like where that's headed. Nope. Yeah. Okay. Never mind. Good call. Thank you. Just retracted all of those words. Never said them. Mm -hmm. Other fashion. You mentioned Dr. Parker's uh, power therapist outfit. Yes. A study in purple. She's got some sensible heels and a, I don't know turtleneck sweater dress that are all the same shade of purple yeah it is like a sexy velma from scooby-doo outfit if that's not redundant (laughs) it's a good look i also liked donna's 80s power skirt suit that she's wearing very very wide shoulder pads on that thing you can tell she runs a business in that outfit yep matching uh red pumps to go with it Mm mm-hmm one of which she loses in that fight scene, which I, I really liked that little detail. Speaking of Perez and his, his detail, she's fighting one shoot through mm-hmm. like half of that battle. I did actually have one more. You also see in the same fight scene that Lissa and Jojo are in, they go by a, a young black tween wearing a rad t-shirt that says rad on it. It's on page seven. It's a cool t-shirt. It just says rad. Looks like he's hanging out with Jazz from the music video, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does. That's a pretty sweet shirt. Yeah, I would go so far as to call it rad. Well, and in an adjacent category, what timestamps were you able to find in this issue? Oh, boy. If uh, Joey and Lissa weren't enough, I have to go to technology. Uh, mm. There's a, a beeper reference to uh, Nightwing not wearing his beeper. Right. And they can't get a hold of him on his beeper or on his car phone, which is a very specific window of uh, time when you would have both of those things and have a car phone rather than a cell phone. Mm-hmm. Other than that, that giant uh, video camera or video cameras that are in use on page 17 with the, the filming of that music video. I assume they're smaller these days. I haven't been on a music video set, but it, it seemed very 80s. It did, and honestly, just the video set in general for Touch It Hard is a very late 80s, early 90s video set. <laughs> that song is so bad. Corey, it is a touching, rocking song about impotence. I'd like to see you write a better one. That might be a challenge. I have it on my desk, along with some pictures of Spider-Man by Monday. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. All right. 
Corey, every issue of a Titans comic book has one character who acts, or rather overacts, in a very dramatic fashion. A president of the drama club, if you will. In this book, who did you have as your president of the drama club? This was a tricky one because I don't know that he was overacting, but this is the best I could come up with for perching pensively on a precipice while admiring the sunrise before leaping into action for making only sounds like roar and grrr and arg. Mm. I had to go with uh, Cyborg as Wildebeest. Yeah, I think whenever you have a character who, after attacking someone, bellows at the heavens, I think bellowing at the heavens is fundamentally a very president of the drama club thing to do. And he does that at least three times in this book. I think maybe four. That is nearly as many times as Hugh Jackman does in Wolverine Origins. And that is saying quite a bit. That is pretty dramatic. So I had probably Cyborg as my choice. His only real competition as president of the drama club would be Joey, because shaving off your mutton chops to appear in an off-Broadway production of a chorus line or be in a chorus line in an off-Broadway production at least opens the door to him literally being the president of a drama club. Oh. I think even so, I have to give the slight edge in this category to Cyborg for just all that heavens bellowing at. All right, two Cyborgs. Well, Corey, I have just one more question I have to ask you. Okay. In... The relatively arbitrarily determined year of our Lord, 1990, and the month of our Lord, July. What was Aqualad probably up to, Corey? Wapoot! Mm, good question. Too bad we're not going with the cover date, because the one that I did when I got that mixed up was actually a little better. So we're not going to learn about... You remember how he started the dissolution of the soviet union and all that stuff that, yeah that happened with that pan-european picnic mm -hmm. in 1989 turns out he was also involved in the uh, the start of the singing revolution that followed that in the the baltics but that was a wrong year oh so we'll just go with 1990 right yep okay so in july of 1990 aqualad was really stoked because he was going to get to see at an outdoor concert in Germany, one of his all-time favorite bands. Can you the guess? Hooters? The Hooters! <laughs> he was so excited to see them play in Berlin, Germany. That song, All You Zombies, uh, and We Danced. Those, mm. those are probably his two favorite Hooters tunes. Sure. What he didn't realize was actually they were just one of many bands playing at a huge concert that was initially conceived as a charity event to commemorate the fall of the Berlin Wall eight months earlier, built pretty much entirely around a bunch of Roger Waters songs for the wall, mm. uh, Pink Floyd, the wall. And uh, yeah, so he was shocked to see this 550 foot long, 82 foot high wall when he was pretty sure that the wall had come down before, but then it got knocked down at the end. And anyway... He did get to see the Hooters, so that was cool, but he also came away with a much deeper appreciation of the Scorpions, mm -hmm. who sang uh, that Pink Floyd song in the flesh, and uh, also Cyndi Lauper, who did Another Brick in the Wall Part 2 at that show. So, Wow. Yeah, 
there was just a, a lot going on. Sinead O'Connor was there. Joni Mitchell. A lot of very talented opening acts for the Hooters. Mm-hmm. The band. Van Morrison. Others. Mm. So, yeah. He was just uh, basically enjoying a, a good concert and having his eyes open to uh, the world of music beyond the Hooters. I'm so glad you decided that it was the Hooters, too. <laughs> I don't know how you, how did you pick that up? I saw the list of names and I was like, oh. Oh. <laughs> the Hooters definitely would be the band that Aqualad would be most excited to see. Well, that was one thing that Aqualad was probably up to in July of 1990. But it wasn't the only thing. The other thing that he was up to was trying to get Beaky into an R-rated movie. Oh, jeez. See, lately Aqualad and Beaky had been having a lot of difficulty finding something that they could agree on to watch together. Aqualad, super into watching old Jacques Cousteau movies, and Beaky really liked a big uh, action film. And there was a action movie coming out that Beaky was really excited about, and so he convinced Aqualad that it was, in fact, a nature documentary about pinnipeds. So they wanted to go see Navy Seals, starring Charlie Sheen. Aqualad didn't know what he was getting into, but I'll tell you this, Beaky sure did. Only problem is, Beaky, well, being quite mature in pelican years, in human years, was not yet 17 years old. So they couldn't go to an R-rated movie. Aqualad really wanted to go see this. He wanted to see it in theaters. Just loved Jacques Cousteau. Couldn't get enough of uh, finding out what adventures were going on aboard the Calypso. So he decided, well, what I need to do is disguise Beaky as an older gentleman pelican. Probably Dick Grayson has some elderly pelican disguises lying around. So I'll just uh, I'll just uh, hit him up and uh, borrow some of his disguises. But. Like everyone else in this book, he was unable to get in touch with Dick Grayson on his car phone, and he wasn't answering his beeper. So he's like, well, crud, how am I going to learn to disguise myself? Then he heard that Nightwing had a library that was opening up. He hears that in Yorba Linda, California, there is a new library opening up in honor of Tricky Dick. And, and what dick could be trickier than Dick Grayson? <laughs> so he decided to go check that out. Unfortunately, turned out it was, in fact, the Richard Nixon library that he inadvertently attended the opening of. There were almost no books in that library about how to disguise yourself as an elderly pelican. So uh, he came away from the encounter pretty disappointed. He ended up sneaking Beaky into the theater under a trench coat with a fedora, which, you know, pretty standard disguise, and was further disappointed by the movie Navy Seals. Almost no pinnipeds in that film. Nary a Cousteau in sight. Very disappointing. But that is what Aqualad was up to in July of 1990. That's the first time I think I heard the word pinniped. Oh, it means like uh, seals and. Uh, Sea lions, uh, I think maybe a walrus, I'm not sure. Anything with uh, flippers for appendages, exclusively? Uh, maybe not anything. Like, not a platypus. They got flipper appendages. They're they not a pinniped. They got little webbed feet like a duck. What's the difference between a flipper and a webbed foot? A flipper is, like, shaped like a 
a shuffle. Okay. Or a, it doesn't have pointy toes. Oh, like an Italian shoe? Like distinct bones in it that make it like a foot or a hand. Oh. In, in, in my estimation. <laughs> I'm not a flipper expert. Uh, it's like a wing. Okay. For the water. <laughs> a, a water wing. Okay. Oh. I myself am uh, not well versed in pinnapedagogy, but uh, huh? nice. but uh, I I think pinnipeds are just like uh, things that are like seals. Mm, adorable. Yeah, they're pretty cute. I think surprisingly vicious in a lot of ways, but uh, very cute. Mm. Except the the is it what are. Is it sea lions? The, the, the males have the big, ugly noses. And they bite each other. That would be lot. an elephant seal. Elephant seals. Ugh. Man, those guys are vicious. I was watching a Blue Planet about those guys. They are also huge. Do you know how much those things can weigh? Uh, I'm going to guess 500 pounds. Uh, try multiplying that by 10, Corey. That's a lot. It's 5,000 pounds. That's impossible. That's, that's what, what I thought too, like but I looked, I looked it up. They, that's why they're called elephant seals. These fuckers are huge, Corey. 5,000 pounds. How much fish do you have to eat to get that pick? All of it. All of it, Corey. Oh my gosh. That's so disturbing to me. I don't know why. I have difficulty wrapping my mind around it. And then you see 5, the footage. 5,000 pounds. I am almost certain. Let, let me look it up real quick. Make sure that what I'm not making this What 5,000 pounds? Like how much does like a, I don't know. A Ford Festiva way. <laughs> probably, probably like a thousand pounds, right? Yeah, I think a Ford Festiva probably weighs about fifteen hundred pounds. So that's like oh a God. third. That's ridiculous. How many elephant seals could fit in a Ford Festiva? Not even one. Not, apparently not. Unless unless they're just like super dense and not that. Okay, Corey, it, it's worse than I thought. Oh no. Southern elephant seals weigh between 4,900 and 8,800 pounds. That is insane. Yeah. That's like, that's like a small dinosaur, right? That's like probably six Ford Festivas. <laughs> At least. Oh my gosh. You'd need like a Ford F-250 just to haul one huh. elephant seal if you're lucky. And we'll have to have an extended bed, too. Uh-huh. Man, I feel like I'm giving a lot of airtime to Ford, but <laughs> just what popped into my head. Yeah, but it's not like it's a glowing recommendation. Oh, their cars could be taken out by an elephant seal. An average yeah. elephant seal. That's true. And a Festiva is basically a Geo Metro, so. Okay. There's that. Man, elephant seals are really big. I think that's the takeaway from this. If, if I've learned nothing else in this hour with you, it is that elephant seals are huge. Yeah, and probably don't get a Ford Festiva if you, A, are an elephant seal, or oh, yeah, are expecting it. to give a ride to an elephant seal. Mm -hmm. Corey, what kind of car do you think an elephant seal would like to drive? I don't know. What kind of car can accommodate an 8,000-pound <laughs> pinniped? Mm. Um, Buick Skylark? Yeah, those are pretty big. Plymouth Valiant? No. Yeah, I think how badass it'd look in one. It'd look cool, but it's too small. Uh, Chevy Malibu? Like a, like a, like an, yeah, one. an old Chevy Malibu. 
yeah those are pretty big man think how cool an elephant seal would look driving that yeah with some some sunglasses well of course i said cool smoking a blunt can an elephant seal smoke a blunt you gonna stop it it's nine thousand pounds well i'm just saying it's a pinniped he can't hold it <laughs> so he's gonna have an assistant human yeah just waves with his flipper hit me <laughs> man I bet it pays well, but I would not want to be part of an elephant seal's entourage. Mm-mm. Nope. You could take his sunglasses on and off. <laughs> hand him his blunt when he needs it. It's a full-time job. He'll, like, slap you with his enormous flipper if he's upset. Well, he's going to get a lawsuit if he does. Oh. I assume being in an entourage is a union job, right? Yeah, I guess. I don't know. It kind of seems like elephant seals are above the law. I mean, <laughs> 8,000 pounds of... Yeah. Do you think that's like a subset of marine biologist jobs is just uh, rolling blunts for elephant seals? <laughs> I don't know, but if that internship had popped up when I was in college, I would have changed my major. Good to know. Yep. Well, Corey, we, we've done a lot of good work here today. <laughs> you don't so much roll it as cut it with a razor blade, empty it out and put the other stuff in it. Well, then you have to re-roll it, though, right? been a long time <laughs> My memory's a little fuzzy well Corey, thank you so much for joining us and discussing these important issues of the day likewise we'll be back next week to talk some defenders as they claim they will be in their strangest adventure yet perhaps they'll run afoul of an elephant seal who needs help rolling a blunt <laughs> we'll find out then in the meantime if you would like to get into touch with us, we can be reached at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. As this is the future, we can also be reached electronically. Can you imagine such a thing? At ttwasteland at gmail.com. I'm also up on uh, various places in the socials media, so you can, I don't know, hunt and peck around. And if you're lucky, you might find me there. Posting uh, pictures of novelty t-shirts from the coast. I found a couple of t-shirts, one of which said, I stole Bigfoot's weed. Another one said, Bigfoot stole my weed. So now I don't know who to believe. But I, I bought the shirts so I could try to get to the bottom of this mystery. Did you really? Yeah, of course I did. Both of them? Yeah, a picture I took was from my kitchen. <laughs> anyway. If you can't find us on social media, there's one more place you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. We'll be in there. We always have been. Corey, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts this week? Learning how to roll a blunt and watching Blue Planet. Those are two activities that go very well together. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I'm going to be up to a couple of different things in people's hearts this week. First of all, I am going to be hanging up the plaque that we had mailed to us from friend of the show, Lucas Brown. It is a concept we discussed earlier, but uh, we were gifted a small wooden plaque that says, Heart Sweet Heart, Tighten Up the Defense 2022, five stars. And that is incredibly sweet. So I will be hanging that up in your heart and possibly puncturing your ventricle with a small nail as I do so. I'm going to try my best to avoid any fatalities, but uh, it's a very nice plaque, so we'll see. I'm away at the moment, so I couldn't see it in person, but Hub sent me a picture, and it was uh, it's very, very thoughtful. It really is. The other thing that I'm going to be up to in people's hearts this week 
I'm going to be listening to some music from some uh, favorite Portland bands of mine. The wonderful drummer and very nice person, Sam Henry, died this week of cancer. And it's a really big bummer. But he was the drummer for such seminal punk bands as The Wipers and Napalm Beach. So if you haven't heard those bands, do yourself a favor and check them out. Um, I remember probably about 15 years ago, I had a friend who was working at Voodoo Donuts and I stopped in to visit her and there was a show going on. It was just a solo act by a drummer, just playing drums. And I sat and watched that whole fucking show. I wasn't expecting anything from it. I, to this day, could not tell you if it was 10 minutes long or an hour and a half, but I watched Sam Henry play the drums for that entire time and was absolutely mesmerized by it. He was an amazing drummer, and it would be a stretch to say that we were friends. We didn't really know each other that well, but he was somebody who I ran into a lot and was always happy to see him. I served him in restaurants and bars for about 20 years, and, uh, It's a real bummer, but I'm going to be listening to the Wipers and Napalm Beach and the Rats in people's hearts. And uh, I suggest that you guys maybe check out that music, too, because independently of what a nice guy he was, awesome fucking music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said. Awkward segue, but if you would like to support the show monetarily, you can check us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. It is up there for people who support the show, and uh, it is from your support that we're able to keep doing the show. So thank you so much for everyone who has contributed. It means the world to me, and there is a bunch of bonus material up there to thank you for doing that. So thank you. Corey, if people would like to support the show in a non-monetary way, what would be an example of how they might be able to do that? Uh, do your very best recording of uh, Touch It Hard. Oh. But, no, that's not it. Uh, you could uh, t- tell somebody about the show. If you enjoy the show and you think uh, somebody else might enjoy it, you know, even if they're not in the comics or, or whatever. They just want to learn about elephant seals or things like that. We are the number one educational program about elephant seals in the country. Probably. Mm-hmm. Yep. So just t- tell your friends that and uh, how to find us. That would be amazing. What else? You could uh, leave a review for the show wherever you listen to the podcast. Sure. What would be something that that review might say? Through rites of passion. Touch it. Touch it hard. Five stars. <laughs> Ah, uh, couldn't have said it better myself. Touch it light, we deceive, not excite. Five stars. <laughs> the lyrics are so bad. Dog doesn't even like it. Why is it a selling point that they deceive, not excite? I don't know that it is a selling point. I think it's uh, an apology for, for bad sex. Oh, man. The song is a bummer. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, maybe don't leave that review. You <laughs> just say, hey, this is a good podcast. I've never learned so much about elephant seals, five stars. And the importance of touching it hard. Maybe don't say it. No, you're right. They shouldn't say it. Just say the elephant seal part. Growing short. <laughs> All right. Doesn't even rhyme with anything. I'm sorry, Corey. I'll, I'll stop being a sty apologist. Thank you. Until next week. 
touch it hard. <laughs> Bye. Bye. And they knew it. any of this stuff no probably should how about you i just have it's this is this uh game of thrones themed johnny walker that i bought (laughs) oh my it has a wolf on the front well i guess if you're gonna have it be game of thrones themed that's the one that you want i mean it would suck if it was just filled with murder and sexism That's the other one. This is the Song of Ice. The other one is the Song of Fire. That's the Targaryen one. Good to know. Uh Uh-huh.